And she's very glamorous in her ways, you know, like I ran into Mr. Pussy and we're good friends. I'm just going to emphasize that in town a couple of years ago. And she was wearing maybe tracksuit bottoms and some more kind of casual clothes and like a woolly hat or something. And because of that, she ran away from me. I wouldn't speak to me. So I called her and she answered the phone. And while she was running away from me on Henry Street, she said, I'm not dressed here. I'm not expecting to see people. And she's just running away from me. I was just watching her go. <laughs> I am Kay Anderson, and you are listening to Lost Spaces, a podcast that mourns the death of queer nightlife. Every episode, I talk to a different person about a venue from their past, the memories they created there, and the people that they used to know. Mr. Pussy's Café Deluxe was a cafe and restaurant dreamt up by Jim Sheridan, Gavin Friday, and Bono from U2, and hosted by old-school drag legend Mr. Pussy. Opening in 1994, the place quickly established itself as the place to be seen in Dublin and hosted a number of record launches and after parties. But just as quickly as it arrived, it disappeared, closing within a year of its opening. I caught up with drag superstar, singer and recording artist Veda to discuss her time working at the cafe and the adventures she got up to. Mr. Pussy's Cafe Deluxe, it was on Suffolk Street in Dublin in 1994. And I was in college with one of the managers there. And from the moment I heard about it, I knew I had to work there. And <laughs> luckily for me, I managed to wrangle myself a job. And I would say it was probably my favorite place that I've ever worked and the best job I ever had. <laughs> Oh, what is that? It was a time in my life that was very special, something that you can never recapture. So it wasn't the best job in terms of how glamorous it was because I was essentially just waiting tables and it wasn't the best paid job or anything, but it was so fresh as the concept and especially here in Dublin because it was a drag cafe, late night bar, restaurant run by a drag queen and some rock royalty. So it had a very <laughs> special flavor to it, you know? Like Mr. Pussy is a legendary drag queen, English drag queen, but who's been living here in Ireland for years. And she's been swinging since the 60s. And she's absolutely fierce and amazing. And um, she was in business with Bono's brother and members of U2 and Gavin Friday, who is uh, the lead singer of the Virgin Prunes and a great artist in his own right. And that was the mix of business partners. And the place was uh, art directed by Gavin Friday. So it was incredibly camp, incredibly over the top. You have no idea. I've never seen anything like it before or since. It was 
absolutely hideous, but in the best way. Anything that you could spray gold and stick to the wall, they would, you know. And there were <laughs> effigies of cocks everywhere. There were cocks everywhere and lingerie and boobs and feathers everywhere, fish on string hanging from the ceilings, mirrored everything, boots everywhere. It was really, really camp, but it still had, it was quite edgy and it still had that kind of thing that a gay man can do where it's such extreme bad taste that somehow it's the height of fashion it's as circles well. circles background, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was very glamorous and really had a beautiful stage. Also, I think as musicians were involved, the stage was was very nice and the sound system was very nice. The lighting was great. Um, so it had just a very magic quality to it. And we used to sell booze all night long. It was open 24 hours a day. And we oh, would wow. sell booze illegally in teapots or in milkshakes. And, and other than that, it was really mostly like a breakfast menu, a really good greasy spoon type menu and booze. But at the time, rave was just really taking off here and club culture was just really growing exponentially. So... The fact that it was an all-night cafe was a sort of perfect storm. Mm. So it was a place, especially at the weekends, that would just be hopping all night long with all kinds of DJs and clubbers and, you know, party people. It was very hard to get into at the weekend. Um, and it was just a really exciting scene to be part of. And to be honest, it really appealed to my ego as well as, as the other people who worked there because the managers were quite cool and savvy and they sort of cast the staff as opposed to just employed them. They picked like very campy, very tall looking, kind of what we would call Godier queens. They picked butch lesbians and you know, exotic foreign girls and, you know, just anybody who had a bit of flavor to them, like anyone with a, with a turban or a headscarf or a tattoo. It's like, yes, leave your resume here. Um, <laughs> so it was a very eclectic. And for someone young who'd grown up fairly sheltered and, and queer and bullied and middle class, essentially, to suddenly be thrown into this world, that was such a mix of everybody from all kinds of walks of life it really was exciting and i hadn't started performing in drag at all at that stage but it certainly is what started the whole thing for me mr pussy was the first drag queen that i really came eyeball to eyeball with and she opened her dressing room door just a crack and i just saw one eyeball and she snatched a gin and tonic from my hand and she didn't even say thank you and she closed the door again and i thought to myself I'm going to make her love me. I don't care what I have to do. And we're still friends to this day. I call her all the time. We're very close. But I just thought, wow, like she is it. <laughs> I want to be <laughs> it too. <laughs> ah, so, so let's talk a bit more about um, Mr. Pussy. And that you said that she was the manager of all the owners. She was the co-owner, yeah. Co -owner. She was the main act. Like it was like if it was uh, La Cage Fall, she was it was Pussy's Cafe. So the big shows were hosted by her. Uh -huh. It was her joint, really. 
Ah, and then so how like hands-on was she in the day-to-day running of it? <laughs> well, that would depend on the week. Like she would mostly fulfill her duties as in do her shows. She would definitely hang out at the weekends whenever anybody famous was there. Um, mm. But, you know, she, she had licenses to herself <laughs> as well. So, you know, yeah, she did her own thing. That was part of the problem. I'm sorry, pussy. But, you know, the, the place didn't stay open for even two years, I think a year and a bit. And part of it was that everybody was having just way too much fun. You know, it wasn't being run as a business, really. And once the U2 money men realized that it wasn't, they just shut it down. Oh, you two. Yeah. Another reason to hate them. Ugh. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, let's go back to 1994. Ireland was a very different place at that time. Um, homosexuality yeah. had just been decriminalized. Was there any kind of scandal when the place opened? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, um, I re- it really took a little while, for example, for my parents to accept that I wasn't a hooker. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Just because the name of the place and because of the association with drag queens and rock stars or whatever, um, uh-huh. they just kind of presumed that there was something more shady going on, but there really wasn't. But it definitely had that air of scandal about it. But that's also was part of the appeal. And it was all painted black on the outside and it was all curtained up. You couldn't see anything. And there was a doorman. You couldn't just walk in off the street. And all of that just made it just seem even more seedy and glamorous than it was, you know. <laughs> and, uh, oh, and I wanted to ask, so you said said that uh, the place was selling booze illegally. In if teapots. Came, yeah, so if I came in as like a, a member of the public and I wanted to buy some booze from you, what what would I have to do? Well... It was totally legal for us to sell booze for most of the day and night. It was only after, I think, 3 a.m. that we weren't allowed to sell booze. So you wouldn't really be there at 3 a.m. unless you were with somebody who was in the know and there was a reason for you to be there. <laughs> you know what I mean? There was I wouldn't get past the doorman, so I mean, I, I wouldn't be there. But. Well, there was basically <laughs> a different set of menus. There was like these shady menus and they had milkshakes (laughs) they had milkshakes on them and the milkshakes all had options to add shots and then they had teapots of what they would call things like mr pussy's tea or whatever but that would either be like a teapot of lager or a teapot of wine or whatever whatever it needed to be you know and did you ever get into trouble for that? Um, I don't think so. I don't think we ever got into trouble. Mm, we definitely had a few scares, maybe a couple of warnings, but I don't think that there was ever <laughs> any any big problem. Uh, They're uh-huh. very well connected, the boys, like very well connected. That whole At that time especially, you two were gods, you know? Uh, so at that time, Adam Clayton was dating Naomi Campbell. 
it was a particularly exciting time for them as a band too. And a lot of that spilled over into the restaurant because um, all of those girls, all of the supermodels were in Dublin a, um, a handful of times that year. And they were in Mr. Pussy's several times, just hanging out all night long. So it was like like definitely the place to be then. It was bizarre. Yeah. Not always, but yeah, sometimes, you know, and definitely anybody big and gay who came to town for any reason would be there if it was Eurasia or Boy George or whoever. And any, the chorus used to hang out there. Anybody who <laughs> was, you know, was Irish and on the up hang out. I love that you're giving me a list of all these big gay acts and then you're like, and then the chorus would Well, come. the funny thing is the chorus <laughs> were like part of Bono's entourage, really. Like the chorus and, and you two were quite chummy at that time. Certainly oh, Andrea okay. core. Yeah. And so you said at the top of the call that you were just, just finished college at that time? I was still in college, yeah. Oh, I was still in college. Um, yeah, by a thread, but yeah. I didn't finish college. Well, I didn't finish that college, but I was in college on my way to dropping out of college. And this was all part of my journey. It was entering Clubland and, you know, getting involved with promoting clothes and performing and doing all of that kind of stuff. Mm, so what, what I was studying on? business studies in Trinity College at the time and that just wasn't doing it for you just wasn't doing it for me once i encountered mr pussy's cafe deluxe i was like nah <laughs> let's just get out of that <laughs> so what else was then going on in your life at that time um gosh well i was uh, hanging out with a lot of queers on the scene really and there were very exciting clubs here at that time like there was a club called Elevator, which used to happen down in the um, in an abandoned factory in the key, on the Keys, um, and some very big clubbing events, and and that whole scene was just blowing up here. It was just beginning to take off, and new clubs were opening here, like Pod, which became a very big club and festival movement. And I actually met John Reynolds, who started opened pod and was the owner of pod and started the electric picnic at Mr. Pussy's. I waited his table and he poached me essentially. And that's how I ended up leaving college and leaving all of that behind. <laughs> he basically says, you know, I'm opening up this new bar called the chocolate bar and I want you to come and work for me. And I did. All because of your serving skills. Not really. I never, I didn't serve anything in the chocolate bar. Luckily, I was like a host, a host, which really meant um, giving away free drinks to super famous people, which is kind of what I was doing in Mr. Pussy's when I met him, you know? So it was just a, an extension. Except I didn't have to actually take orders and serve food or do anything in the chocolate bar. I just had to dress up a little bit more and <laughs> and get swan around i can get paid a lot more <laughs> and swan around really that's the truth <laughs> oh um oh. uh and so then 
uh, you talked a little bit about kind of the status that comes with being involved in a, a venue like that and, and being part of the staff and being specially chosen and having that kind of being anointed one of the chosen ones. Um, what does that do in terms of your, well, I was going to say date card, but that's not really what I mean. But like, in, does, does your kudos instantly go up with people that you meet? I don't know. You know, I, I think that's a scales. Your kudos thing <laughs> goes up here and it goes down there. <laughs> you know, some people, I, I really think that Irish people enjoy, it's part of our humor to begrudge people as well. So, you know, so for some people, I think, yeah, like they might think I want to think myself. <laughs> but most would think, yeah, who does she think she is? And really, you know, does that get you laid? I don't think any of that stuff really gets you laid. You know, it, it depends on who you are and where you're coming from. Like I have friends who are fairly um, like high profile. Some of them really use that to get laid. Others don't. <laughs> That's not really about the people they're meeting and sleeping with. You know, well, who, who's it's getting about laid who most? they are. <laughs> who's getting laid most? <laughs> Yeah. That would be telling, not <laughs> me, not me. But I just mean, you know, it is a thing. It's a thing. And I was never like like that kind of person so much anyway. So, yeah, I don't think it made any difference for me. If anything, wow. it was probably more of a turnoff because it made me wear more makeup and be a little bit more outrageous. And I don't know, it's just a funny thing that happened, though, in clubbing was for a while around then, in a fun way, the more outrageous things were, the better. Like there was a lot of faux fur going on. There was a lot of belly tops and glitter, and, you know, <laughs> just really outrageous fashion for the gays, for all the gays, you know, because clubbing had a real freshness to it. But then quickly it turned into like the more straight acting scene needing to be seen to be more straight acting and starting to dress down secondhand uh, American looking t-shirts suddenly became the trend and Van Z type trainers or whatever. And the Queens were sort of segregated off into, into this other zone <laughs> of, you know, of fetish wear or, or whatever. It was funny just before all of that happened, I think for, for clubbing and for fashion were really the glory days for me because everybody was just like dressing up as fuck to go to the club you know everybody straight gay camp straight acting whatever um you don't really see that anymore i mm. i have lots of amazing friends who are bears and i really admire the bear scene for example but you know um this summer in provincetown i i went to an amazing club bear party but the theme really was to be so extra and so super dressed up and every bear there was practically in a bikini and heels and wigs and makeup. And they have never looked sexier or more beautiful or more interesting or whatever to me. And it just really hammered it home to me that there's something missing in that version of queerness for me, that when they bring it back, it's actually that heady mix of masculine and feminine. It's like the freedom that like the no fucks given that's the exciting space for me. Those are the clubs I want to go to, you know, rather than the kind of brugish, sweaty, hairy backed, you know, <laughs> rar, uh, uh, can I smell your shit pipe 
type clubs. Like I'm just not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not that girl. <laughs> so, like, so on that, so you were saying that you became more extroverted, I suppose, because of your surroundings and because of what was normalized to you as being part of that um, venue. But, yeah. but prior, but prior to working there, were you also on that more glam side? I guess I was getting there. I had definitely had all of those tendencies, but I, I was suppressed, like super suppressed before I came out of the closet, before I met certain key individuals, before I ever entered a nightclub. I didn't really know that world. But once mm-hmm. I got into it, I was very hungry for it and still am. And I really enjoyed the challenges back then of, you know, of really not having very much and wanting to turn a look at the weekend, really wanting to look amazing. Like we used to pool resources a lot with friends, share clothes, lend each other things, buy vintage things, make things. It was a production. And it wasn't just all about you. You help your mates, they'd help you. It was like a team effort, you know. I loved all of that. Uh, and importantly, there wasn't like 300 photos of it the next day that everyone could yeah. judge you for. <laughs> so you yeah, you're lucky if you silly. find a photo. <laughs> My friend Susan, uh, every so often produces these amazing photos of raves because she had the wherewithal back in the day to take some photos, develop them, keep them. And she just pulls out these photos of us, maybe looking a little bit worse for wear, but like in incredible outfits, you know, just lying around at after parties wearing incredible outfits that I had no idea where they are, where where they came from, (laughs) you know. So describe some of these outfits to me. What was your favorite? Um, Well, one that we still talk about that we had a name for was a big, um, basically it was just a big long sleeve pink fur, jumper with extremely long fur and we called it the I can't jumper because uh, myself and Susan like kind of made it together and then when I put it on it looked so crazy that I was like I can't wear it I can't (laughs) I can't wear it and then we were just kind of falling back laughing and then of course I wore it I was like okay I can wear it but it was one of my favorites because like it was such a stupid thing to wear to a rave I almost died of the heat and it looks like (laughs) it looked like something maybe kind of that would be around a very uh frou-frou granny's toilet floor in a way (laughs) (laughs) you know it was very bathroom and it's aesthetic but it was still fun and sort of bjorky I suppose as well and yeah I guess that was one of my faves. <laughs> but and then Susan doing... also made for me a, a t-shirt of pink sequin lycra kind of fabric and a pair of pink sequin 70s flares. Like all in the same pink stretchy sequin fabric. That was also totally ridiculous, but I loved it, you know. <laughs> Um, are you one of those people that's so committed to your outfit that even if you're dying um, of heat exhaustion of heat you don't take it off I guess yeah it'd be fair to say if if I needed 
to. I'm not someone like who's shy of showing my body. So it's not like I would actually die before I would take off what I was wearing, but I would suffer a bit first before I take it <laughs> off. I've worn a lot of latex, especially in drag. And that's not fun, but it looks amazing. But I wore to the invasion in Fire Island a few years ago, a uh, uh, baby blue sailor look um, latex dress. And the photos are, are amazing, but I had a river of sweat running down my back. It was, you know, it's a really, really, really hot summer's day. And it was just a really bad choice, but I'll suffer. I'll suffer for the art for sure. <laughs> well, I mean, no one can tell how much you suffered in the photos. So yeah, as long as they're exactly. good. <laughs> so back to the cafe. So you had left by the time that it closed. Yeah, I was in actually transitioning out of there. I think really we all knew we were going. And John, who offered me the job at Pod, knew, I'm sure, that something was coming. I think that he came expressly to look us over a couple of times <laughs> just before the shit hit the fan. Mm. But do you remember hearing about it, like that it was going to close? To be honest, yeah, I, I don't... Mm, I don't remember exactly how, I, but I had already gone when it was officially announced. But definitely there was a lot of uh, Norman, who was one of the owners, who was Bono's brother, coming in and out looking stressed. There was a lot of the managers like being really stressed out. I think the chef, head chef was fired. Yeah, he was, mm, allegedly. Stuff like that. You know, there was just stuff going down and... John Reynolds came in and just sort of threw me a lifeline and I just snatched it with both hands. I was like, I'm out of here, bye. So I wasn't there when it actually closed because there was no bad blood or anything, but it was definitely would be a bit raw for me to walk in and go, but I'm fine. I'm up in the chocolate <laughs> bar now living my best life, you know? Yeah, so I didn't, I didn't actually go in on the last week or the last few days or anything. Oh. Oh, that's mm -hmm. It's a shame I didn't get any keepsakes or anything, but I got Mr. Pussy. I didn't get any memorabilia, but I got actual Mr. Pussy, who I still have as my keepsake. So that's uh, the biggest treasure of them all. Locked in a cupboard somewhere, is that what you're saying? No, but like she's my drag mom, and that's how you acquire a drag mom, really. And she's uh, she's hilarious and sharp as whip, but... um. But yeah, it's one of those relationships that's been really important to me. Yeah. So let's so let's talk about it. So that you had the first um, meeting where she snatched a drink from you, and you were determined to make her love you. And yeah. Obviously, obviously, you've achieved that goal. Um, I worked but, on it. <laughs> but what you didn't say is that she was your drag mother. So she introduced you to drag. She did because she was the first one that I really knew. Um, I got super inspired in San Francisco, you know, shortly after that, meeting loads of amazing queens and performing a lot in bars in San Francisco. And that really shaped my style. But I always think of Mr. Pussy or speak of her as my drag mother because she was the first one that I worked with, as in I saw her do her show lots and lots of times. And that's really, that's imprints on you <laughs> in a way. It really does. And also, style-wise, we're not similar, but 
personality-wise, we're not dissimilar. We're kind of similar people and we definitely make each other laugh a lot. And I wore her down. I think she would chuckle about that, but she would kind of agree. Like, I wore her down. She's not that easy to get to know. And she she didn't really claim me as her own darling daughter until I had made a success of it for myself. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I always talk about her as the kind of drag mother who gives you up for adoption. You know, <laughs> she is my drag mother. She had very little to do with my development, but, you know, we were reunited later <laughs> when, the, when I was an success, adult. Yeah, when the success came in, she started sniffing around again. And oh, she, she would she... take credit as, you know, all of a sudden she'd take credit. She wasn't taking credit when I was just fumbling around trying to figure it out. You know? Oh, so I always have these, this kind of image in my mind of drag mothers, like sitting their drag daughters down and showing them how to draw an eyebrow and do makeup-y things. But it wasn't like that at all. It was just like... No. Uh, and I, I've never really... I haven't seen that many relationships like that. I've seen a few. YouTube does that now. But I would say that that is more like a drag sister's job. <laughs> That's not oh. a drag mother's job. Ah, so what's the drag mother's job then? I think a drag mother, essentially, whatever kind of thing you've got going on, whatever kind of show or thing you've got going on for yourself, essentially, the language that I like to use is you have a house. That's your house, you know? It's not really normal for the drag mother of the house to be sitting down talking to somebody about their eyebrows. The drag mother of the house will be teaching you about eyebrows just by doing their own eyebrows. And if you're smart and you're watching, <laughs> you'll learn. <laughs> you know what I mean? But normally, the drag mother of the house has got a lot of other shit going on. Lines, running orders, lighting, <laughs> sound, <laughs> you know, management, whatever it is, merchandise. It's not really how I do it. And I've never seen anybody really baby <laughs> the children that way. I think what a drag mother does is encourage the children to help each other out, you know. Mm. Uh, I'm so sorry to dart all around the place, but you were saying before about how that, um, yeah, that dressing up kind of helped you to uh, explore and led you to the path of drag. Do you remember your first time in drag? Yeah. I, oh, gosh, I remember it like very, very well. Um, I have a friend who is currently living in New York. He's a filmmaker and a really sweet guy. And he and I lived together in college around this time. And he started doing drag. His name is Paul Rowley. And he had a drag character called Impala. He started doing drag while I was working in Mr. Pussy's. And I guess this is what I mean about drag sisters. And drag sisters are the people who really help you out. So he was, uh, she was my sister. And I used to help her get dressed and dragged up for gigs. And we would go together and hang out together. But I had never done any drag myself. But I was seeing a lot of drag in Mr. Pussy's and experiencing it vicariously through Paul. And... I really didn't have a big ambition to become a drag queen, but I went to San Francisco to visit Paul after he had gone there um, 
to live. And so I went there to visit him. And for fun, I agreed to perform with him um, at a club called Tranny Shack, which was a big swinging scene there at the time. Um, So I arrived in San Francisco the day of the performance. And it was a Tuesday morning. And we performed that night, Tuesday night at Tranny Shack uh, together. Our act, our band together was called the Fashion Olympics. And we performed I'm in Love with a German Film Star. I don't know if you know the song. Yes, yeah, yeah. It was my first ever drag performance was with Impala doing that song. And I saw the rest of the show. And the rest of the show is why I became a drag queen. Well, that experience, definitely that night, the, the whole night, but especially seeing all of these other drag queens. I had never really seen like a gender folk drag. I had never seen um, like ugly drag or or a lot of things that I saw that night. I had never seen that kind of drag before. I met that night Animatronic from the band Scissor Sisters and she and I are still very close to this day. And we met that night and she was a, a, a bio queen. It was the term that they used at the time, but she was, you know, a, a woman performer. And that blew my mind as well. Like Mr. Pussy is amazing, but to go from Dublin in that kind of cabaret environment where it was very much like Shirley Bassey inspired and very polished to this really rough, mm-hmm. grungy kind of nirvana drag that was happening in San Francisco was very exciting. But mm. more than anything, one performer in particular, a performer called Steve Lady. Steve Lady um, is the reason that I do drag. That night, I saw Steve Lady perform one song and I, I was there in drag already, but just participating as a friend, really, but by the time she finished her performance, everything had changed for me. I was like, I had seen the light. I want to be a drag queen <laughs> because I'd never seen someone look so amazing and androgynous and beautiful. And she lip synced uh, David Bowie's song, Rock and Roll Suicide, which was one of my favorite songs ever. And most drag queens who lip synced that I had been ex- experiencing also lip synced women. She was like lip syncing a man and she was very beautiful and, and the kind of performer who didn't have to do much. She had so much charisma that she really didn't have to do much to make the whole room go crazy. And, um, and she did, she made the whole room go crazy. And that was it for me, the light bulb moment where I thought, wow, like I really want to do that. I didn't know I really wanted to do that, but yeah, Steve Uh, was the game changer. That's so interesting because, you know, most, you know, most people that you talk to are like, well, I always had this inkling because, and I used, I dressed up in my mother's clothes when I was a young I did. Oh, okay. But seeing that hyper feminine, feminine version of drag wasn't appealing to you. It was that more. Yeah, it could have been some kind of like internalized homophobia. I'm sure I had lots of that, especially at that time here in Ireland. But maybe that was it. Or or I think it was more like trying to find a truth for myself, my own gender identity when there wasn't a language for it. I think that's really what it was, was that like, I am not a trans woman. I'm not a cisgender 
man. I have very deep and beautiful relationships with uh, trans women and trans men. And we are sisters. And when we commune together, I don't feel different to them. And I don't think that they feel that I'm different to them. Mm-hmm. They don't treat me any differently. And to me, that's a kind of utopia. And I think Veda as a character for me, the reason that she isn't a hips and boobs kind of girl and that she isn't a, a gown and diamonds kind of girl is really that Veda has been a vehicle for me to figure out a lot of those more complex things, you know? And, and I think Steve Lady was the first time I saw someone who seemed to be all of those things in a package mm-hmm. that that inspired me so much that I wanted to, to do that too. Mm-hmm. So, so you got back from San Francisco and then are you just gung-ho about like, this is what I'm going to start exploring? Yeah, totally gung-ho, crazy yeah. gung-ho. <laughs> and I was like, in fairness, I look back and I smile about it because I was so gung-ho and I really did quite well. You know, I like threw myself into it and, you know, and it and, worked. <laughs> <laughs> and given that the scene, like the wider queer scene at that time was made, was kind of in its infancy, let's say, what yeah. was the drag scene in Ireland like? What was great, like really beautiful about the whole experience was that I had made friends before I went to San Francisco with um, Rory O'Neill, who is Panty Bliss. We were already friends and hanging out together and all of that. And I had already seen a lot of drag in Ireland and, and, you know, had been at events with them, but it just wasn't in me yet. I wasn't looking at it from that point of view, mm-hmm. but I was definitely enjoying the ride. So when I came back, the Alternative Miss Ireland was already, you know, gearing up. And my very good friend, Shirley Temple Bar, um, was also experimenting with drag and getting into drag for the first time. And we, the three of us, myself, Panty and Shirley, had great chemistry together. And the rest of the drag that was going on here was Mr. Pussy. And then there was a guy called Joe Candy. There wasn't really much going on. And there wasn't anything like what we were doing. Our stuff then was very edgy. Mm -hmm. And I think Panty is such a great speaker and such a great looker. And her thing was very like your glamorous auntie. And Shirley's thing is like your zany kid sister, especially then she was very zany and crazy in her performance style in a really fun way. And then my aloofness just sort of worked with it because it brought this sort of darker sense of humor to it that's a bit more rock and roll and a bit more aloof. So it was funny because it was a funny time in Ireland. It was like Celtic Tiger days and queer was suddenly becoming okay queer was kind of in so we were getting opportunities that before i don't think would have been afforded to us so for a while we did all kinds of really bizarre stuff we did a lot of clubs and things that we did ourselves on our own steam but we also did a whole load of christmas parties and product launches and fashion shows and all kinds of stuff um yeah for quite a number of years and, Until um, the arse fell out of that. <laughs> you know? Why did the arse fall out? Really the credit crunch, you know? Oh, okay. 
we stayed kind of like we separated a bit and all kind of stayed in our own lanes and Panty opened up Panty Bar and I've been doing my own cabaret shows and stuff and Shirley's Bingo has been really successful. And, but, you know, I think everybody just kind of cruised along on that wave until the credit crunch. And then I think everybody had to work so much harder to get a crowd into a club to just work so much harder to make it work. But that mm-hmm. wasn't all bad either. You know, because that that kind of uh, having to rely on yourself and your own resources and dig a bit deeper actually can make you happier. So even though I hated the recession for some some of the things that came with it, there were some things that came with it that, you know, that definitely made me a better person. Mm-hmm. But I mean, still, yeah, shit. Um, it is shit. To- it is shit. I guess <laughs> I just mean as a drag queen, like... For a while there, I would go out and buy something new, buy something new to wear every single week without a thought. And then the credit crunch happened and you're just like, what was I even doing? Yeah, <laughs> what yeah. was I buying yeah. fucking something new every week? What kind of hole do I have in me that I had to buy something new every week? It's ridiculous, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, it gave you that opportunity to rethink your priorities. Um, yeah. And there's another one coming. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm ready. I'm ready this time. I'm ready. <laughs> um, I have a sewing machine. I'm ready. <laughs> and and so so telling your parents that you worked at Mr. Pussy's was like put Awful. the fear in them, made them a bit scared. What was it like telling them you were a drag queen? Awful as well. Yeah, awful. Really bad. I didn't like... I don't think either of them were into it at all in any way. It was like years and years later before my mom ever came to a show. Um, my dad associated, I think, drag queens and all of that with with sex work. I think trans uh, uh, trans people, drag queens, cross-dressers, sex workers were all just one big umbrella. One big lump. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. So that's really what he saw <laughs> when he looked at at me and what I was into doing. I think, you know, he was triggered by it, maybe thought as well that I was going to want to transition or I don't know. It definitely opened up anyway, a whole can of worms. Mm. Did they like want to explore that and understand it more or was it just a shutting down of... What actually happened was, I guess our relationship wasn't brilliant for a few years, but um, but we stayed, we loved each other, so we stayed in touch in, in ways. So we'd have better telephone conversations than we would real-life interactions, maybe for a while. Um, but, uh, but then one night, um, in the height of our sort of gay drag queen glory days, myself, Panty and Shirley, at RTE our national broadcaster did a gay night on TV and Panty hosted all of the links in between the TV shows. And there were two documentaries on that night. Uh, One of them was about the alternative Miss Ireland, which I won in 1999 and I've been involved in ever since. And the other one was about the phenomenon of Shirley Temple Bar, which featured a lot of it featured a trip that we took to Tranny Shack in San Francisco together 
for the purposes of the documentary. But funnily enough, my dad was home alone that night, flicking around the TV, saw Rory on TV and sat there and watched a documentary about the alternative Miss Garland, which I won. <laughs> I'm just saying that like, it's quite funny. You know what I mean? <laughs> that he watched on TV. And then a documentary about Shirley. And it was a game changer. It changed everything. Like but he it, really tried it. after that to be friends with them and to be uh, like better with me. And so at that point, did he had did he know that you had won or was was that news to him when he was? Yeah, there? he knew. He knew I'd won and he knew that my sisters and you know that my friends were happy about it, that that knew or felt that it was a positive thing, knew that it was a big deal, that you know that it was a big event. Mm-hmm. But um but he didn't understand what it was. But then I think to see a documentary about it and how fun and fabulous it was and also how big and glamorous it was and also that it raised so much money for people affected by HIV. And, mm. and also Rory's just a great politician as well. So she's a great person to mediate between you and your dad via television. <laughs> she's a good, she's a really good representative <laughs> to kind of stick out there in front of you, especially if you're kind of a bit more aloof and maybe just a little bit more, I don't know, militant <laughs> like I was, you know, she was a more acceptable face of drag <laughs> than his own daughter. Um, <laughs> so that changed things really like a lot for the better. So the lesson here is if you are struggling in your relationship with your parents, get a make a documentary. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. I mean, that's it's great. That's great advice for people listening. <laughs> or maybe the really the lesson is try and bring them with you. You know, just try bring them with you. <laughs> you know, just try. Did you ever go to Mr. Pussy's Cafe Deluxe? Well, if you did, I would love to hear from you. Please share any photos or anecdotes or stories that you might have. You can reach me through social media on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, under the user handle kandersonmusic. And you can find out more about Veda by following her on Instagram, Veda Lady, V-E-D-A Lady. Lost Spaces is not only a podcast, but a concept record as well. I've been writing songs about queer venues and the people who used to live their lives there and will be releasing songs over the coming year. You can hear the first single, Well Groom Boys, which is also playing underneath my talking right now on all good streaming platforms. If you like this episode, I would really appreciate if you subscribe, left a review on Apple Podcasts, or just told people who you think might be interested to hear it too. I am Kay Anderson, and you've been listening to Lost Spaces.